It's Monday, January 21st, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 193 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is composer and pianist Eric Wubbles. Let's have a listen. You know, for a lot of the composers that come on this show, the people that write music for classical instruments, Eric specifically, it's really hard to just play a little sample up front uh, and, and offer the full impact of, of the, this kind of music and, and his compositions. Eric is a genius, and I'm glad he's on the show today. Today on the show, Eric Wubbles. Thanks to everyone who's been signing up for the Patreon. Uh, it means a lot to me. It's really, really helpful. And if you haven't yet done it but have been thinking about it, please consider doing it. You sign up for the Patreon, and at any level, you will get instant access to the entire archive of the 5049 podcast. Specific episodes in that archive that may be of interest to those of you listening to today's show would be conversations with Steve Lehman and Mario Diaz de Leon. Why might those be of specific interest? Because just like our guest today, Eric Wubbles, uh, they were actually all at Columbia doing their PhD at the same time, studying with George Lewis and Tristan Murray. But we'll get back to that. If you're digging the show, please sign up for the Patreon. Please also rate and review it in iTunes. I've been saying it every week right at the top of the show. I think it's good to just get it out of the way. Do that. Okay, Eric. I'm not going to say his last name uh, simply because growing up I had and still have, I've just learned to work with a particular speech impediment. That speech impediment makes it very difficult uh, for the letters L and S. And when you start it with a W, just saying his last name up front, I actually had to record it about 10 times. Eric Wubbles. Wubbles. Arnold Palmer is another word I have a hard time with. Anyway, I've been aware of Eric for a long time, mostly as um, a mutual colleague and collaborator uh, of several people I know. Most specifically, Mario Diaz de Leon, who is, you know, is a close friend and collaborator of mine. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be having and I'm having a lot of people come through the podcast who are involved specifically in the world of new music and composition. And a few weeks ago, I, uh, it dawned on me, maybe, maybe a month or two ago, that I'd never really checked out Eric's music. And the first record that I checked out it's called Duos with Piano, Book One. It came out on Carrier Records um, just a couple of years ago. And as soon as I hit play, it immediately knocked me out. Um, in addition to being a really intense, meticulous composer, uh, Eric's a pretty spectacular 
piano player. And this particular record is uh, sort of a product of his involvement and longtime involvement with the ensemble Wet Ink. It's a series of pieces with Eric on piano and 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 another instrument. Uh, there's a piece for prepared vibraphone, for violin, for flute. Unbelievable. I was kicking myself in the ass for having not checked this stuff out sooner. And since then, I've been digging in with everything he's got out there that's available. And it's all top, 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 top shelf stuff. Truly. You know, I, listening to his stuff in the last couple of weeks was a, has been a breath of fresh air. Like a total reminder of of how intense and beautiful and just attention-grabbing modern composition can be. And as you'll hear in today's episode, he's a very delightful, great guy. And I'll, I'll just tell you something real quick. Um, as many of you know, I have two small dogs. And basically, you know, I'm at almost 200 episodes of this show now. Every time someone comes over to my apartment, it starts almost always the same way. As they get off the elevator and approach my door, my smaller dog, Pearl, starts barking. So whoever's on the other side of the door can hear the dog barking and me trying to calm her down. Once they come into my apartment, uh, those dogs start running up their legs and, you know, they're, they're very sweet. And I bring this up because it's gotten to a point where I sort of begin to assess the person based on that interaction. Some people show very little interest in my dogs. Some people have actively said, no, I don't like dogs. You know, please, I'd like to keep those away from me. Eric, like others, immediately got down, started playing with the dogs, picking them up. Uh, at some point, the dogs came into the, the my recording booth and Eric ended up picking them up and they were actually on his lap for most of the talk. I bring all this up to say that I had a very good feeling about Eric based on the way he interacted with my dogs. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Eric is a member of the Wet Ink Ensemble. Wet Ink is a composer, performer, collaborative group uh, that is now celebrating 20 years of activity here in New York. Wet Ink at its core is Alex Minchek, Sam Pluta, Eric Wubbles, Kate Soper, Ian Antonio, Josh Modney, and Aaron Lesser. A tremendous, unbelievable group, and they are absolute stellar killers. Top shelf new music. I can't recommend Wet Ink enough. Uh, go to the website for Wet Ink. That's wetink.org. They're celebrating 20 years, and there's a lot going on around that. If you want to find out more about Eric, go to wubblesmusic.com. W-U-B-B-E-L-S music.com. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Eric Wubbles. Like a little too into it. Yeah, I just reread the road. Um, yeah, recently. That's a hard one. Man. I mean, in it terms is. of like, it's, it's exhausting. It really is. Yeah. And um, I felt, you know, same way with Blood Meridian, which 
was um, maybe the one where I really like connected with him um, in a way that I felt like, okay, he's in my, you know, top 10. Totally. Like all time. Um, but they're both, you know, completely horrifying. <laughs> completely horrifying. I don't spend, books. I guess I spend more time reading fiction than I care to think, but he, I mean, that book and, and Cormac McCarthy in general, like I feel fine. I, I've been having this discussion with people lately uh, about film and about literature where yeah. like I distrust people that say that any new thing is great. Uh-huh. If someone's like, get out, right. is great. It's right, like, how right. can you say that? It's only been around for like a year. Like you need to let it breathe to see how it fits in with other things. Uh-huh. Uh, but I feel confident saying Cormac McCarthy's great. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like someone like him, um, he really is a model for me in a certain respect, which is thinking about, like, uh, within the whole spectrum of, like, American fiction. Yeah. Um, just, I think there are certain writers who really are engaging with, um, you know, not just, like, narrative and character and storytelling, but with just pure language. Yeah. Um, and that that's the thing that really kind of turns me on in literature, is, like, having all of that stuff together. And I feel like there is a whole... Um, segment of you know really popular, really um, acclaimed fiction in which the language for me is is really this kind of incidental thing. Mm-hmm. They, they don't do a lot with it. It's just sort of there to like drive the character, and it's about sure. those relationships and all these kinds of things. But um, when you then put that in juxtaposition with like someone like that, or um, uh, you know, I, I feel like the uh, it it's firing on every possible um, level in a way that makes the experience very very complete yeah um feeling to me and also probably i just connect with like that um particular register that that he tends to write in which is that yeah, i think it reaches back into that whole like you know old testament like totally um kind of thing and just like make all these words that you don't like is that actually a word it seems like <laughs> i know what it means right and that's that's a brilliant thing about it like i know exactly what you're doing with that word i don't know if that's a word actually because i've never seen that, word, seen that before. word but you feel but like it, you know what it you, means. like you found this like middle english prefix that you like then extrapolated into this other like part of speech and like that it was just exactly the right thing for that yeah kind of moment um so yeah just the way in which um the way in which he works with like the the surface level like beauty of language um is something that i also want from like all of my arts yeah experiences like food and music and um it's funny, I've, I've never really thought about it in those terms, but that's exactly right. I'll take use of language over storytelling pretty much any day of yeah, the week. I, I don't read Harry Potter, but right. I will read Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, and you know, I at this point, I also recognize that as like a personal preset of mine and sure. not something that I think should always be, you know, I guess I understand that like other people are really driven by things like that or that's what... Um, that's what's exciting to them. Right. But for me, it, I, that is the, the thing that um, that gets me more often than not. I mean, has literature always been uh, uh, a big thing for you? That is actually where I started. Really? Yeah. Even a, before you started playing piano? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I guess kind of contemporaneous with that. I mean, the before I was doing music in like a really serious way, definitely before I was writing music, I was uh, I was in a magnet school program within the like small little uh public school that i was in and hey, where'd you grow up in virginia where williamsburg colonial oh, Williamsburg. Really? yeah okay yeah which is a very weird place to be from yeah um i think on some level but um just like because of the history or the because most people know it is like a it's like a place they went on a school trip in high school you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like what there's not like an industry that's there but there's, there's like crazy like a, people reenacting the civil war there right uh probably uh, even before that, you know, okay. like uh, uh, 17th, 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that goes on. Um, uh. 
in the kind of downtown area and then like you have bush gardens where like that was one of my summer jobs there. in uh, yeah. high school was like um working at that amusement, amusement park. park yeah yeah just like watching like rednecks like throw up on themselves and oh man it was uh i worked in the uh the land of the dragons the children's area <laughs> and so like my brother worked in scotland you know you had to dress up in these uniforms so like he had to wear a kilt i looked like a male nurse in, uh-huh. like a dinosaur print like t- blouse kind of t-shirt Did you like, and, like it or it was just like you had to get oh, a job? Was, i mean it was a summer job it was it was ridiculous it was like even at that point i was having these things of like oh man i wish i were sorry, a filmmaker very annoying. uh you know just like some of the the, just the people who were in that situation that I was working with or just the things that would go on just like this is like a Christopher Guest movie you know, right like, it's um, it's hard not to see it that way like yeah. total total absurdity right. yeah absolutely but you were uh, initially drawn to literature yeah um, and maybe that was just uh, sort of circumstance um, but uh, maybe not so yeah I was in this um, uh, in Williamsburg in this kind of like public school situation where um i think just very luckily there was this um like housed within that that particular school there was a magnet school that drew from all around for uh literary and theater arts Uh so there were like theater kids and um uh sort of literature people and so i I got to like fall in with like the art kids at the right moment yeah Uh, and so that was that was crucial Are are your parents artists uh, my mom is actually a uh, visual artist, or she uh-huh. did like um, traditional Pennsylvania German folk art, which is like her uh-huh. background. Um, where they're they're both from um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, and my dad uh, was not, but he was musical person and played the violin, and he was he was sort of the classical music uh, buff. So he's around. the one that that said piano's a, a good choice. Yeah, I guess I guess so. Um, or they they both sort of um, they made all the kids take piano lessons. There mm-hmm. were four of us. Um, and so we all started out doing that and, um, but yeah, by, by around high school, um, I guess, you know, the, the piano thing was never a creative thing though. Right. That was the thing that, that became clear after a while. It was like, it was like, uh, this is an extracurricular activity. Yeah. I, something I enjoyed a lot, but it, um, it, it was like a long process after that fact of making music into something creative because it was this very much like read the notes executive mm-hmm. kind of. Um, you know, do what you're told mm-hmm. um, version of that, which I enjoyed and thought was fun and I still loved music, but it, I had to like make that link to the creative side of my brain at a later date to even just have the idea that like you could write music or you could improvise. I mean, what was like one of the first bridges where where you recognized that? I'm playing in bands. <laughs> playing like in, in friends' bands or in like school bands? In friends' bands. Like playing. in bands with friends. Like I played guitar oh, really? like every, you know, uh, 13-year-old. Um, but... Yeah, I had a really ridiculous, um, looking back at it, I think it was kind of awesome, actually. This, like, my first band with uh, my best friend, my older brother, and my best friend's older brother. Uh-huh. Um, where, like, the my friend's older brother was, like, the ringleader and the kind of, you know, he's one of these, like, high school, like, art kids who was just um, very charismatic and knew all the bands and all the stuff that no one else knew. Um, so he got it into his head that he would, like, make this band that was somehow about, like, doing like early ornette coleman whoa like he he was he called it sort of like free jazz but it definitely wasn't that it was definitely it was just everyone sort of like playing independently Mm -hmm. from everyone else and like he was trying to play a different tempo in each limb on the drum set he was the drummer i had never played guitar before but like like you had literally no experience with the guitar no but i was like 
talented as a musician. So yeah. like within a couple months, I could sort of like get around and like play um, some scales and play some chords. And just play some sort of random right. <laughs> kind of shit. And, um, yeah. And then like after a while, he he was just sort of like the music director for this thing. Like, okay, you do this, you do this. I was like, again, like 13. Wait, um, but how do you like, you're, I mean, you're, what year were you born? 1980. We're the exact same age. Oh. How, with no internet in Williamsburg, Virginia, do 13-year-olds find out about Ornette Coleman? Through this guy, through like word of mouth. I mean, um, yeah, through through friends um, and that whole like, you know, the older generation kind of being, oh, this is the cool thing. You should check this out. Um, there was actually kind of like a good, um, I guess it was sort of pre-indie, but it was back in the like uh, grunge alternative kind uh-huh. of like era. But it was basically like an indie yeah. um, scene, but uh, maybe a little bit. Um, more interesting than that sort of like a post-punk like a little bit of the dc um influence down that way in williamsburg so there were some people who were like around in that um little social circle in high school too who went on to like um a friend of mine from there was like in the early arcade fire crowd and like in the whole montreal kind of um scene up there and yeah i mean like in retrospect it was like kind of some interesting Pretty solid yeah. yeah 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 it wasn't just like a weird random like parochial you know backwater yeah it was like oh in- like creative teenagers doing um kind of you know goofing around in ways that in retrospect are super funny but yeah i found like a cassette of that band a little while ago and listened back to it and was like and this is not all terrible i i'm like, not surprised to hear you yeah, say yeah. that because i had this experience the other day where i listened to like i can't listen to my records you know like it's come harder and harder for me. Yeah. And I actually listened to something that I made in like 2009. I was pretty sure, you know, I'd rather like go deaf than ever yeah. hear again. I listened uh-huh. to it and I was like, there's some good shit on there. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a 29 year old. So I would hope that there's some good shit on there. Right, right. But yeah. it's like, I don't know, with, with enough distance, like you can, and, and like a greater sense of context, you can see that like, even if you were unaware of what you were doing, sometimes there's like some shit there. I think that's that's a really interesting thing about working with like, um, working with kids at a certain age. Yeah. Um, and so I see that occasionally because I do this summer program up in New Hampshire, the Walden School, um, for the past few years. It's really interesting to catch kids being creative before like all of the frameworks have come in mm-hmm. when they're really just totally open in this sort of totally open field. Um, because it like I come away from a place like that just feeling like, oh my God if we could just get these kids through puberty and college without getting in the way of this kind of yeah. like creativity, they, they would just do incredible things. But all that stuff comes in. And um, I think all of those things, what stuff, the stuff like, okay, you need to learn how to like play in tune. You need to learn how to, it's a combination of um, socialization, mm-hmm. um, the way in which that happens in a musical context too, which is that in order to fit in with any community, you have to basically adopt its strictures and traditions and rules. Um, and it's, it can be so interesting to, um, to see the way in which people, in which ideas present themselves to people before they've learned any of that right. kind of stuff, because there, some of this, all of these rules and traditions, like some of it makes sense together and some of it could be totally different. It just happened to go that way. Mm-hmm. What if it hadn't? And right. so, like seeing all these things that are sort of prior to to that um, is really kind of inspiring to me too. Of just like um, trying to remain in touch with uh, that aspect of creativity. Which is, I mean, would 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 what you just described um, 
be at all appropriate in describing the way you initially approached the guitar when <laughs> well maybe but i mean mostly i was just trying to play like smashing pumpkins okay. <laughs> yeah i think uh my memory of that time period age 13 with guitars and basses was uh picking up copies of guitar world and guitar player and reading tabs for yeah right like nirvana or whatever it was yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was that and then i was like oh i'm gonna learn the little wing solo or like the you know junior. oh dude that's amazing right you learned that solo yeah yeah because i was just like i was that kind of kid it was just like okay this is what i do i apply myself to this i'll like so that was like one of the one of the few things that i learned to play on guitar little wing yeah that's like maybe my favorite jimmy song it's a great song yeah yeah uh so but at this point though you still see like you said you know the piano was you know like for most kids like it was an an extracurricular activity that wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily a creative pursuit right but then playing music with the band, was that also somehow just another activity of doing with friends? Or was there like... No, that was definitely creative. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I think it it's still... It wasn't the same thing as like writing in that it wasn't... Um, or what writing was at that time where you already have the sense of like, um, I'm dealing with form. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm dealing with like how to take my ideas and give them structure. I guess it was a little bit, but, um, you know, that uh, particular type of music that we were doing was like, um, pretty stripped down, pretty like, um, either sort of riff based or like just a little idea. And then you'd repeat it and then be like, okay, we're going to go to this thing after that. And, um, so there was some of that, that kind of thinking there, but it wasn't, um, it didn't feel like a full on, um, like what my experience of, you know, being creative is now is like a um it was just sort of like a good uh entryway into yeah. That. yeah did you like that group dynamic uh totally i mean yeah it was uh i had a great time doing that and again like looking back i'm i was the only one of that group that went into music but i feel like any of them could have they were sure. all super talented and interesting. i mean by the time you finished high school you saw a path of classical piano performance uh actually i think i went off to college thinking i was going to be an english major another way to make a million dollars very easily <laughs> right um but i sort of like jumped off that track um pretty early in my undergrad where'd you go <clears throat> i went to amherst college uh -huh. in massachusetts western mass um yeah which i can't even remember why that was why you went there yeah like why there and not somewhere else but it, it was totally cool uh, yeah I'm, I'm glad i did it was uh, it was a good experience and uh met a lot of great people and um also met a lot of like brett kavanaugh's you know uh-huh like, they, they um, tend to roam those grounds yeah. but um on the whole just, i just want to say real fast i did the exact same thing the other day i used his name as shorthand for like white sexual predator <laughs> young white sexual predator yeah, uh -huh. and i just hope that becomes absolute shorthand used universally it's perfect because it i mean it's like everyone who i think has like had anything to do with that particular social it's just such a type uh, that's he, the perfect name for it like seeing the way in which he reacted in that situation mm -hmm. it's just like yep i know who the fuck you are i know exactly but that's who the thing like i felt like should have been a bigger part of that conversation and you can see why it's not we'll go back to music but because it's in fact you know judging people and it's you know it's doing the exact thing that we're asking that we stop doing but Part of the reason we all felt such a visceral reaction to him is because he's such a pure specimen of that. Yeah. Of just rich, white, entitled, sexual predator. I mean, I mean you, you could see it. As soon as right. you see him, like, I was like, oh, I know who that guy is. Yep. yep. You know? And I've seen that person doing, like, you know, terrible shit yeah. in, um, you know, some situations. Yeah, there's no way that this guy has an objective point of view or a sense of fairness anywhere in his DNA. 
Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a tough one. <laughs> yeah. So, so you got to Amherst and realized that English was not, in fact, the thing. Yeah. Um, for a combination of reasons, I think um, having been in that particular program in high school, which was just a really excellent um, program for like a high school uh, level. Who um, were your favorite authors at that time? Oh, good question. Um, not totally sure. Like, or what I were think some it, books that really sort of grabbed? I don't you? know if I could if I can give like the interesting answer that I want to give. It's probably more like typical teenagery. Like I was reading, you know, Neruda mm-hmm. uh, poetry, and um, maybe I had read like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man or something. That was such an important book for um, me in high school. Yeah, yeah. But um, oh, Hesse. Yeah. And that actually sticks with me. And I actually read an article in the New Yorker recently about like how Hesse is this like adolescent thing that like speaks to people in that age. And for that reason, mm-hmm. is like um, lesser. But um, that really annoyed me because I, I really don't agree. Well, I, I will say this. I had a really good English teacher in high school who really got me into reading uh, a lot of books. I'm glad I read then because I don't know if I'd read them now. So uh-huh. like Heart of Darkness was a huge book for yep. me. And like I read that as part of high school curriculum. Same uh-huh. goes for, you know, um, you know, 1984, Portrait yeah. of the Artist as a Young Man, yeah. uh, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls, like all these books. Like, I don't uh-huh. know if I'd read them now. Yeah, right. Because, like, I don't have enough time, but right. I'm so glad that, like, I actually yeah, yeah, yeah. did my time <laughs> with that stuff. Totally. Um, yeah, and so doing that, I think it was kind of a rigorous um, program. And so when I, the first few classes that I took at uh, Amherst in English, I just felt like I had already kind of done yeah. this. And um, I mean, I still took some, some, good, some good ones and had some good experiences with that there, but. Um, kind of got just onto this other track with music and was. What were you listening to at the time? Um, oh man, that's a good question. Had you gone off the deep end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was always into like weird shit. Yeah, and, like even when I was like just studying piano with like you know local teachers, uh, I was always just pressing them for like 20th century stuff, and I, I didn't want to play Mozart. Wait, no, I, I, just conceptually, it was sort of like I know that there's people who were alive 50 years ago. Some of them are still alive who are doing things. Like I know that's like a, a group of people. It, it wasn't even out of some sense of connecting with like the present. Uh-huh. Uh, it was because you know I was like listening to um, all this other music that was from the present, and for me that was sure. that was contemporary music. It was just like you know. Um, whatever it was at the time. Um, but like, it, I just wanted the weird sounds. Ligeti. I, I wish I had had Ligeti at that time, okay. but it, it like, didn't even have access to stuff like right. that. It was like Prokofiev was like, that's the know. out shit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so just whatever I could get. Um, I remember like there was one summer, like, uh, in high school where, um, a typical day would be like going to swim team practice in the <laughs> morning. And then I would come home and just like sight read, Scriabin yeah. piano sonatas or something for like four hours and I can't believe my parents put up <clears throat> with, I mean just hacking through like like really incredibly I, hard look, you can hear the music. kid practicing piano working on it or it could be like hey it's two in the morning we don't know where he is I guess yeah yeah I mean there was some of that too but um yeah mostly the Scriabin um yeah so so that kind of stuff um yeah, I don't know. My, I guess my my taste. Uh, oh yeah. So around that time, it was like uh, that was like techno, uh, okay. early like Chemical Brothers and like weird like um, kind of like pretty some a lot of you know just mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of random like uh, early internet like mods that people would pass around. Yeah. Um, you know some like trip hop British um, right stuff. Uh, I think by that point already, I was kind of falling off the like guitar rock. Mm-hmm. I'm just not seeing it as super interesting anymore. Um, 
like I didn't really get into Radiohead like that. I kind of missed it. Still have sort of passed. I actually just um, uh, Anna brought back a bunch of CDs from her parents' place, um, and we were like listening to Kid A the that, other day. And it was just that's like, the one that I'm okay with. Yeah, but even then, I like it's like the first song. There's there's things that are like these you know incredible like musical images. Mm-hmm. And there's like two or three of them on the record, but uh, as a whole, I was just like, oh, is this really all this is? It's all it is. It's all it is. It's just it's just kind of a vibe. Yeah. And that's that's interesting to me now, like thinking about like um, you know, when we're getting to this place, which I think is awesome and exactly the right thing, of like kind of flattening out all these um you know, uh treating music in a much more level playing field. I mean, I, I'm not saying this to shit on anyone, but if you check out the the work that Johnny um Greenwood's done for the PT Anderson films, yeah. Like it's not that hip. It's. I mean, I'm not saying this to shit on anyone. I just mean like he's working with a full orchestra. Right. I totally agree. And it like there was that whole period of like three years where it was just like hearing that shit over and over again. And it's like all about this guy. I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I Especially mean, if you've like never heard Penderecki or like. And these, I love those movies. Anytime sure. a PT Anderson film comes out, I see it the first day in yeah. the theater. Yeah. I'm just saying that the music is not the most interesting part of that. It's totally fine. Yeah. Did a fine job with it. I don't think it's something we need to devote like public funding to like playing. Absolutely you know? not. <clears throat> yeah, it's not fucked up in any way. <laughs> so, right, right. So, um, you knew that 20th century music was a thing, or you had a uh, an idea that there were people doing crazy shit. Yeah, it, it was just a again like a default setting for me. I think was like um, just seeking out the kind of strange, unfamiliar, weird. Uh, stuff that was that was really interesting to me. I and guess. so, by the time you got to Amherst and you were realizing that perhaps this this English trajectory wasn't the thing, yeah. what was the music that was really important to you? Um, I think at that point, like um, the like Ligeti was starting to um, come online for me, and yeah, he was he was really huge Messian yeah. as well. Um, I was at Oberlin teaching for a year a, a little while back, and. Um, you know, like they're all those kids there are super advanced and like they know everything up to like, you know, what's posted on SoundCloud yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my thing there was to be a little bit like reactionary and like teach a class on just Ligeti and Messian, because to me that was like just fundamentals of um, if you want to just get like really um, solid chops in all the stuff that will help you realize all these ideas that you have now, but you don't have the technique to do just like these two artists are just like kind of a key the compositional See, techniques. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, but also that's just, you know, from my, my personal um, defaults and prejudices and experiences of those, um, that music really hitting at the right time. Um, does the biographical nature of those guys or artists in general, does that, does that play a part for you? Uh, it does um, in the sense that there was this whole big uh, issue, I think like 60s, 70s and just aesthetics, like, between Europe and the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, this debate over, like, um, you know, minimalism as a rejection of atonality and all this. But um, uh, I can see, to a certain extent, um, someone in the U.S. who, you know, didn't live through the Second World War, or, you know, didn't live through the Holocaust in the way that um, that Ligeti and his, uh, his family did, um, you know, fight, like going to school and being told the only way you can make music is with like this, you know, expressionist kind of rhetoric and mm-hmm. um, uh, atonal syntax. Uh, whereas, um, you know, when it's the biographical nature of uh, that, I think does, um, it just aligns with um, 
the kind of expressionist <clears throat> aesthetic of, uh, in particular, Ligeti's music uh, in a very strong way. With Messiaen, it's um, maybe almost in opposition to that, like the whole um, POW story. Mm-hmm. Um, he was writing the same music before that as he was after that, right. like, as he was during that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It, he's, um, it's interesting to look at those two in, in kind of... Um, in contrast for that particular thing but um so yeah for from that you know standpoint um it it makes a certain kind of sense you could say for um given the whole you know what that kind of music meant within the context of that tradition mm-hmm. uh to write that sort of expressionist music in reaction to those kinds of things um whereas uh you know if you hadn't gone through that kind of trauma um you might choose not to mm-hmm. right in that way. And so I think, um, that certainly is a convincing, uh, perspective, um, to me, but, um, the, the way in which, uh, Ligeti in particular kind of, um, integrates all that stuff. Uh, I still, um, you know, not that like he is the person that for me is like a core, uh, aesthetic touchstone at the moment, but, um, super important for my development. Yeah. Um, just the, the, the irony, the irony that goes into that. Yeah. Just like, um, the, like a piece like Aventure where you have, um, you know, knowing the biographical stuff, having all of that sort of feet, like knowing that he had these direct experiences of like, you know, Stasi kind of, mm-hmm. and then just having like a guy with a megaphone, like yelling, but also like just the absurd, like popping bubble wrap and like someone's like tearing a huge piece of paper. Yeah. It's, it's this cartoonish, mm-hmm. like intensified, um, version of all of this um, kind of horrific stuff. And again, like realizing that it's someone who actually lived through it. And this is their way of dealing with it is to alienate it and to like turn it into this cartoon, this sort of comic. It's just like, it's it's even more moving to me to see it. Um, Just the the layers of psychology that go into that, um, those kinds of choices. um, Yeah, just super potent. Yeah. uh, Expressively. I mean, all those guys, you know, I, it's, I, I realize I sound incredibly naive when I, when I present this idea, but I had this conversation with Alex Minchek about that, where like, and I've talked with Mario Diaz, look, Diaz de Leon yeah. about this, you know, where like, did these guys, you know, these like 20, like Zanakis, like, mm-hmm. I know they were like, you know, incredibly intellectual and they were, you know, really thinking in terms of like artistic statements, but like, were they just down with scary shit? <laughs> and like... <laughs> You know, but you, yes, has to be the answer because if you think about like what each and every one of those guys went through, you know, Zanakis, they all like, you know, came out of World War Two. Yeah, I'm sure that they were they were in touch with an intensity that people like us will never even know. Well, potentially, but um, but I agree with you um, in general for sure. <clears throat> but I also think that um, I'm sure it's the case that um, it's not a one to one thing with trauma. And I I really, you know, would resist uh, that when people would ascribe, you know, if I write really repetitive music that they would, you know, try to like psychoanalyze me as a result of that. Um, But so in a situation like that, I'm sure like Zanakis um, too is just, he's just really interested in hearing these things really as abstractions, Mm -hmm. really, um, as much as um, this other thing too. And it's not... um, it's not all that. I mean, just like the pure pleasure of creating something that's never been heard before. Yeah. I think was such a, um, such a thing of that, that time. Um, and culturally, like just all the like space, you know, 
So the, the sense that like there is just more out there in the universe that we have no experience of yet. Like, what is that? What could that possibly sure. be? Uh, a big part of modernism, which was, mm-hmm. you know, that, that whole thing. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that that's um, also kind of a, a big part of that. When you were, when, when this stream of music, you know, contemporary composition from the 20th century was really beginning to impact you. Was there an aspect of that viscerality that was like an initial yeah, response? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think after a while I started to um, even kind of compartmentalize my own sort of like back of the napkin uh, aesthetic theory was just like um, there, there are these different uh, sort of levels in which you can respond to uh, music, like visceral mm-hmm. being one of them, like maybe emotional being another sort of rational, um, maybe spiritual uh, yeah. as a fourth. Um, and that genres in, on some level or, you know, when the, in their sort of codified forms are like pie charts that go in different percentages to mm-hmm. those things. And maybe like uh, if you have a certain kind of music that's like, you know, super visceral and kind of like heady, like techno or something, or you have like uh, one that's like super emotional and very reasoned, but very unvisceral, like, you know, common practice, like Haydn era mm-hmm. music, which is, um, you know, maybe to my mind, like not a, not a tremendously visceral music in comparison with, um, you know, what maybe preceded it even in classical music and followed it in classical music. Um, but so, you know, to me, um, I think, again, that's the reason I didn't respond as much to um, that era of music as I did to like Bartok or mm-hmm. uh, Messian or the the um, the people who were um, making more um, viscerally rooted kinds of sound worlds, um, which, you know, if I look back on it now also hooks up with like um, blues and uh, like I loved Led Zeppelin like that was like a huge high school uh, thing um, for me as well so uh, in sort of looking back on all of that um, I can sort of see a kind of composite um, sort of sound typology or sound world that I was kind of searching for or drawn towards it that I were, would go were after. Were you cognizant uh, do you think at the time of of this like I, I, it took me a while to kind of draw, like build these bridges between yeah. interests and ideas. Where I, it's it's crazy to think about it in hindsight that it took me as long as it did, and it's taken me where I, I, I began to realize it was okay to take what I liked from certain things, sure, and yeah. leave the other stuff behind. Yeah, even just hearing you just now, it's like Led Zeppelin. That music sounds amazing, right? You know, yeah, I'm yeah. not so interested in in fucking white guys from England playing the blues. Exactly, those yeah. records sound in insane yeah. and like every record just sound like that even if it's like a violin concerto right you know no i totally agree yeah um oh man well we can get back to that later but just talking about like how uh new music people need to produce their records like uh pop music okay. we'll get back to it because yes and <laughs> maybe we could take like a radical like hard left because yeah. here's the thing i want to i want to um if i got some huge grant today yeah there's a good chance i would use it to to host a summit where i introduce compressors to classical musicians and producers. I mean, I, I would like to, to think that... As well um, as the concept of close micing. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's happening. It's, ha- it's just yeah. not widespread. And, like, it is an ongoing battle. Um, because, you know, like, so in the situations that I find myself in working with, like, Sam Pluta or, you know, um, Carrier Records, uh-huh. like, that's the aesthetic to a certain extent. Yeah. It's like, close mic everything. And then, I mean, it, that's how people listen to music. They listen to everything else has been super compressed. It's not, like... Uh, it's not super interesting to have 
to just be super precious about like dynamic range mm -hmm. at this point. I mean, especially I think maybe also like because we live in New York, like does anyone have a pristine like auditing environment? <laughs> like the only people I know that have those are like gigantic yuppies who right. have give zero fucks about contemporary right. music. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm, I'm definitely like, I just want, I want you to feel it. I want it to be visceral. It should be like present. It should be, Man, I'll just say this. I, I went to a concert one time uh, in this apartment in, in um, Tribeca. Solo piece that Jay Campbell, cellist, was uh -huh. doing. Yeah, yeah. And I literally sat as far from his cello as I'm sitting from you, you know, listening to him play this solo piece. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I heard that music as it was to be heard. Right. Why would you fucking put mics, you know, 200 know. feet away? Yeah. Like, I can hear the creaking of the wood and the hairs on the bow, you yeah. know? It was just like, I felt, I got shivers listening to it. I mean, I think part of it is that classical music developed a whole aesthetic that there uh, there shouldn't be any noise. Like, it tries to erase the performer's body completely. Like, there's a whole technical training that goes to that. Or is it a thing with composers? I mean, I feel like most compo contemporary composers I know anyway, they want every little detail yes, heard. totally. And that's why you bust your ass making a score and then hiring the best cats you can. But it's not details. It's the idea that, um, and this is not a contemporary idea. This is like, you know, romantic or classical, yeah. probably not even romantic, but like um, there is this whole training that goes towards, you know, anytime you can hear a noise, anytime you hear like bow noise or air noise or something like that, you're reminded that there is a body there. Which is amazing. Yes. But to Glenn Gould. If, if your whole idea is that like it's just abstract structures sure. of pitch sure. and time, then you don't want to be interrupted by, you know, Glenn Gould or like I actually like really still have trouble with Keith Jarrett, I have to say. But, well <laughs> for a number of reasons yeah, do I have trouble with it. It's just hard. Um but um that that sort of thing of like um I think it's actually uh, no longer the case that people are thinking in those terms at all, but that that was a whole tradition mm -hmm. of um, the the best sound is one in which there is no noise, because noise maybe it was totally subconscious. But yeah, but those rec I'm sorry. Well, I, I feel like a bitch about this all the time. But like yeah. those same recordings, those same like you know audiophile you know two channel recordings of classical ensembles, you can hear you know oh, the old turning. Ones. You can hear like yeah, <laughs> some of sure every time, and I want to screech every time I hear it. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah. tangent. Going back to a young Eric Wubbles at Amherst and a Chihuahua at your legs. I'm sorry about yeah. that. No, no. These dogs are uh, gonna drive you crazy. So, um, but did, were you thinking in terms of just like sitting at the piano, being a pianist, or were you also thinking of like you you wanted to compose? I had a very strong um, creative impulse at that point. Yeah. And it just took a second to switch the tracks from words to music. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely knew that I didn't have the personality or really the skill level to be like a concert soloist or anything like that. That was never on the table. I just... Um, you felt that pragmatically or with some sense of defeat? I, I didn't want to do it anyway. Okay. But uh, it was also clear yeah. <laughs> um, from from trying to do it a little bit. Um, you know, I would like play a, in high school, play like some concerto for some competition and get the notes back. And, you know, I felt like I'd like really grown and like yeah. worked really hard and done this. And the notes would be like, it doesn't sound like you're ready to play this piece. Right. Like, oh. Well, okay. I didn't want to anyway, well, so piss off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just like getting introduced to what, what was the standard for um, just what it meant to excel in that world? It was not a life that 
uh, that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I would get a piece up to like 90% level and just be totally bored after that. Yeah. Like very quickly, like ramp up to like, you know, um, from one week to the next, just be like, okay, great. I've learned like three quarters of this piece. It's sounding pretty good. Next week come in. It's like, great. Almost there. And then the week after that hadn't really made much progress week after that in my lesson. Just be like, yeah, I'm kind of tired of this. Were it's you not like quite ready books? for performance. Like you read like 75% of a book and put it away? Uh, no, I, I would get through books. Okay. okay. Yeah. But like in terms of um, uh, that aspect of the discipline of, you know, being a really um, a high level performer in the sense that it requires in classical music. Um, I, it just wasn't in my personality yeah. to do really. Um, so yeah, that, that was clear. Um, but I, I loved music and was in a, um, the department there was super small, um, really, really tiny and just a few faculty. And they were really excited that there was anyone there who was interested in contemporary music or 20th century music or mm-hmm. new music. And there was, uh, me and a, a classmate of mine, Steve Potter were like, sort of found each other early on and we're like, Oh cool. We like, we're into the same stuff. Let's start a new music group. Cause there wasn't one at Amherst. So, um, that was a sort of like <clears throat> in retrospect, um, the beginning of a pattern of like, mm-hmm. um, just kind of coming up with something when it wasn't there. And what is, what did he play Steve? He was also a pianist and composer. Okay. Yeah. So we were kind of like, um, Actually, like, we didn't know each other at first, and then by the second semester, people were like, you have to meet each other because you're both just, like... Isn't that funny? Exactly the same kind of track. Um, Yeah, so, um, yeah, we did that, and we... uh, So by my sophomore year, I was, like, playing a Stockhausen piece with, like, three faculty and um, a bunch of grad student percussionists from UMass, and... Yeah. um, It was amazing. It was just, like, the kind of thing that you can do when you're in a small place where not a lot of other people are trying to do the same thing, and... Um, just get a lot of individualized attention and um, at a very early time. And that was, that was great. I really am grateful for um, having had that, that experience for sure. Um, So when you finished up there, you, did you at that point kind of have a clearer sense of, of moving forward as a, as a composer and organizer? Yep. By that point it was, um, that was clear. That was what I wanted to do. But I also had this idea that I wanted to, to also study piano at the graduate level in in the context of new music. Right. Not in the context of classical. I mean, I feel like that's like a tricky thing where like, I don't really, like, could you describe if at all, uh, like your idea of synthesis of composer performer and how we were reconciling the two things? I mean, it's just such a normal thing in every other kind of music. Mm hmm. So (laughs) there's that. I mean, um, and I think it's finally starting to become normal again in, um, you know, whatever academic composition or music. I mean, shouldn't every composer have some level of ability to express their ideas to the performers with musicianship? I, I really value musicianship. Um, and I, I do understand and sympathize to a certain extent with, Um, people who would still stick up for the, like, you can be a great composer and not be an instrumentalist, not be thinking in terms of instrumentalism. That's bullshit, man. It's just not where I live. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a strong feeling in the community, uh, still. But do you feel like as a composer who, you know, you, in your lifetime, you're working and able to see your works realized by musicians 
do you feel like you have some level of credibility based on the fact that like you can you know sit in and and blow for lack of a better term yeah i mean i hope so it, yeah that, that like, has been I, my experience i think absolutely yeah um and uh i think the other thing that's um really nice about it just it's whatever it's what any composer would want when um you know if i'm like doing one of these duo pieces and i've found someone who's you know generous enough with their time and is just down to like spend a really long time putting this thing together um and i'm one component of that and then we can we can just play it we can play it from memory like we yeah. can pl- rehearse it long enough that it's completely internalized like it's very very rare for people in the new music world to get a performance of their music that's you know on that level not to like toot my own horn or anything but like sure um just to have someone completely internalize uh your music because that is that is not what the scene is structured to do economically and logistically um yeah you never see a stage without music stands on it yeah i mean and i totally get it and it, yeah i i, I wasn't a criticism no no no. just you know that's it, the fact I, I am being critical of it i think by choosing to do it a different way yeah uh, but only because i think the other way is better and everyone should have it but mm-hmm. i mean um that you know requires other things too um but yeah that i i did at that point start to really identify in that kind of dual way um and also you know having had a bunch of experiences of like i don't have to be the greatest pianist um, you know, even at this school, I right. be the best pianist at the school. Uh, I don't have to play, you know, Ravel flawlessly. I don't have to play Mozart flawlessly to participate in a way that feels really meaningful to me. And, and it's like a ground for really deep experiences. Mm-hmm. And, um, just to have the, the, the pleasure and the, um, the meaning that comes from the social dimension of mm-hmm. music, which as a composer, otherwise you're like just behind this glass wall while all these other people are like, having this kind of spiritual experience. Yeah. It's odd. Yeah. And like, you know, Mahler was another huge one for me um, at that age. And being a pianist, you never get to, you would never get to play Mahler in your life. Like you never get to be in an orchestra because it's just not part of the instrumentation. But I was like, oh God, I just wish, I wish I played some instrument that, you know, maybe even I could like um, learn to play like, you know, um, Tam Tam, well right. enough to just like be on stage once for a yeah, performance to play of like the music. Mahler Five or something. Um, so as you were finishing up at Amherst, as you were you know kind of seeing you know a trajectory as a composer, did you yeah. feel like you'd have to go back to school, or that did that self starter and you say I'm gonna ready to go out and hit the streets? Oh man, it was. Um, it's interesting the extent to which I never questioned the path until very late. It was just like. <laughs> okay, this is what it is. I'm a composer. I go to grad school, like, you know, full steam ahead. I'll be a professor after that. Like, this is just what it is. Um, and how quickly that got just derailed and interrupted by, um, just the, the reality of what it is and recognizing the ways in which that wasn't a great fit for me, uh, personally. I mean, that keeps you off the bandstand a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so when I was, uh, at Amherst, I stayed around for an extra year and taught, there they had a program where you could do that um that was cool uh and then i was applying to grad programs and um ended up um it was between columbia and ucsd in san diego mm-hmm. and at that point i was sort of like um i had a weird relationship with new york so this was like 2001 
When in 2001? So it was pre 9 11 okay. 2001. So even <laughs> a lot of then, people had a weird relationship <laughs> with New York that year. Um, but I was like, oh, I don't really like New York because I had like, you know, I was dating this girl who was um, down there a lot. It was just like in Manhattan. I was like, nah, this is. I was in my like Western Mass bucolic. Right. You know, everything should be like, you know, chill and low stress. And um, but then I started like hanging out with musicians there a little bit um, here in New York. Yeah, like yeah. through her. So she was doing like a jazz program at MSM and. Um, so I was like, oh, this is, this is more interesting than, um, than I would have thought. And I can sort of start to see the appeal. Uh, in the end, I decided to go to UCSD. Oh. Um, because it was the one place that said I could do both piano and composition. And they had a great performance program out there and like great piano faculty. So I chose to, to do that. Um, and yeah, maybe that was a something of a misunderstanding, or me just sort of wanting it to be that way. But I got out there, and they were like, "Yeah, you're, you're here for composition, so let's you know focus you on." on Who that. said that? Uh, just the comp faculty. Yeah, there was sort of the the message, and it was just also a totally different, like such a different vibe there. So having finally gotten like hooked by the New York thing of being like, "Oh, people come here to like work at the highest level and yeah. like, cut their teeth, and, push themselves, exactly, and just like, themselves, see how you fit in with like the best people." And, yeah, right, like. Um, yeah. And then I got out there and it was just, it's Southern California. It's beach culture. It's, you know, and it was also at that time a weird, like mini, like the department was like aesthetically like Germany, like straight up. Yeah. Just yeah. totally <laughs> within Southern California beach culture. It was an odd vibe. How long were you um, there? I dropped out. <laughs> after how long? After uh, two quarters. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I almost immediately re- did the like, I've made a terrible mistake kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I was doing long distance with this woman. She was in New York and was like, shit, I'm just going to apply to Columbia again because that's what I should have done. <clears throat> so I did. And um, basically as soon as I heard that I had been accepted again, I was just like, Hey, look, I got to get out of here. Cause I was just like basically in psychological crisis trying to like in San Diego. cut it out there. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was super dark. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm grad school dropout. Proud of that. Um, but I mean, I've been back to that program, you know, many times as a performer and played people's music. And right, but then you went to Columbia, so there. you didn't like. Yeah, but I'm just saying, no hard feelings. Yeah, you didn't like go buy a bag of weed. No, exactly. You know. But I did. I I went home <laughs> to my parents' place and I worked at a Lowe's Garden Center. Oh, really? Yep. For like how did that make you feel? Several months. Uh, it made me feel super privileged because I was working there as a contractor, and then I so I was getting paid the same as people who'd worked there for like their entire lives for like 15, 20 years. And you were aware that there is, and it was just like, Oh my God, I'm just doing this as some like, you know, glorified summer job for my taking a break from composition. Yes. Right. Um, and these like, you know, some of these people are like, it's good to get that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went there for that and kind of saved up some money to go to this music festival in Hungary that summer, which was my kind of like reentry into, um, what was the festival in Hungary? Uh, they, I don't even know if they're doing it anymore, but, um, I think it was just called the Bartok Seminar, International Bartok Seminar in Sombate mm-hmm. by the um, Austrian border. Um, it was kind of cool. I actually like met a couple of composers there who are like still around on the scene and like I'm friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was an odd experience, basically just ramping up to go back to um, get into composition again so at when Columbia. Did you start at Columbia? Columbia? Fall of 2003. So. Who was around at the time? Who were, who were your, your peers at Columbia? Yeah, it was, I loved that time. I think it was um, a really interesting moment. I kind of caught the tail end of um, Tristan Mirai 
was there and he was um, sort of this big, he was the big European figure. Um, so he was drawing in all these people who were like in their 30s, and mm -hmm. like late 30s. People interested in spectralism. Yep. And, but from like Brazil and Morocco mm -hmm. and uh, England and Sweden and all over. Like my, my entering class was Germany, Sweden, Morocco, Minnesota, and me. And I was 23 and, you know, this one of these other guys was like 36 and had a publishing contract with like a major European mm -hmm. publishing house. And it was just like, oh, shit. But I loved that. That was great. For mm -hmm. me. Just like being the, the little kid and everyone else um, just kind of learning from um, uh, being around that and what everyone else was doing. Um, so I really valued that uh, a lot. And yeah, there were all kinds of um, really interesting people in the older generations there. Um, James Fay was really influential um, to me. He's um, teaching out at Mills now. Mm -hmm. He's like, um, do you know his stuff? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a great guy. Yep. And so he had this this one record in particular that <clears throat> I just still think about. Like Which one? Pretty often the alto saxophone quartet. Yeah, with the the fracture, the damaged yeah. reeds. Yeah, yeah. Just I think the, like the the level of thinking and construction um, in that, and the sort of elegance of the way that he uses notation versus uh -huh. openness is just like um, really kind of like shaped my compositional brain in some ways. So I, I feel like I owe a lot to to him for that. Um, yeah, and then like so, a couple of years into it, George Lewis showed up from San Diego, where he had been. Oh, okay. I didn't realize he was out there. Yeah, yeah. So that's where he it was. Uh, he wasn't. I don't. I can't remember if he was technically in the composition program. I think they they did sort of like marginalize and sideline him in a really, really fucked up way. Um, I don't want to speak for him, but mm -hmm. um, that was my memory of it. So when he um, came out to Columbia, very soon after that, we had like. Steve Lehman and Mario Diaz de Leon and um, Courtney Bryan and a bunch of like, you know, really interesting, you know, people who would not normally have been at Columbia kind of showed up. So the whole thing really opened up. Yeah. Um, and so within a couple of years, oh, I mean, and then, you know, the year after me, it was uh, Minchek came in and then Kate Soper the year after that, Sam Pluta. That's quite um, a crew. Yeah. So, I mean, Wet Ink formed there. That was like where that, Wet Ink that, formed. Or the, the new version of right. like Wet Ink as the, um, what it has been since, you know, 2007 or so. Um yeah, it was just, it was from hanging out there. Um, That's a know. solid crew. It was, it felt like it. Yeah. For sure, even in the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time we were leaving, we were just like, this, yeah, this felt like this was really something that that kind of coalesced here um, in a kind of moment. Um, yeah. So did you, uh, you guys were all studying with George? Uh, they sort of made everyone study with everyone. Yeah. So Tristan. Which I think was great. Tristan um, Mirai. Mirai. Um, George, after a couple of years, George Lewis, Fred Lairdall, uh huh, um, and a couple of folks who are no longer um, there. Jonathan Kramer uh, was one. Um, Sebastian Courier, yeah. So it was a <clears throat> it was a nice crew. It was um, interesting, and I think it got more and more interesting I over mean, the time. I, that that type of educational environment, like how much of it is tailored to what you're already doing and interested in. Like, if they do, you have an advisor who. Like how, how does it work? Yeah, it, I think at that at that stage of the process, um, where most people are, you know, pretty far along in their training, it tends to be more tailored, um, just helping you realize what you want to realize. Yeah. Um, you know, you still have to take some required classes, but I feel like they sort of moved away from uh, even my experience of like taking people right out of undergrad. Um, it's it's a little bit more uh, advanced, or it became that. 
Um, so yeah, it's really like, um, it's an experience that I, I actually wish that composers could continue to have beyond grad school, just hmm. like another set of ears, another set of eyes, mm-hmm. someone to call you on your shit. Um, someone to help you see your blind spots. Um, it's just one of the hardest things about, you know, getting really deep into a piece and, you know, novelists have editors, mm-hmm. visual artists have gallerists or whatever. Right. <laughs> the other, it, it's only really, I think in composition that we still have this like super 19th century idea of like, you're a genius working on your own. In a I mean, the like, wilderness, we'll you know, with, like, if you're, if you're, the if 10 you're, commandments, if you're making Raven music, there are few, uh, I mean, I choosing the path or the composer has potentially the most lonely path. Yeah, which I'm also down with. Yeah. I think more than most people. Um, yeah, but um, in balance with other things, it's it's great. Um, but I I just I would wish that I would wish that there were a little bit less stigma around the idea of just like getting someone else's opinion. Well, about when something. you've made records, have you brought in a producer? Uh I. I've always worked with people that I trusted yeah. on it for sure. Um, I've definitely like, I made a record, um, which is a big string quartet piece for Mubo's quartet and has like a lot of electronic stuff in it. And I basically got a friend of mine and was like, I want you to be my cinematographer, like quote unquote. For right. This. Like I, I don't have these skills to right. do this, but I know what I want. Uh, and if you're down to like, you know, I'll give you whatever authorship credit you want for this. Um, let's make sure it, it like feels good to you, but can we collaborate on this, you know, thing together? Which is it? And he was like, yeah, it sounds awesome. Let's do it. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of process. So he helped you realize the sonic presentation of the piece in a creative way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and he, he programmed all the electronics that go into the live performance uh, yeah. on the record. He did, you know, we sat together in a room and just worked. I mean, he had all the logic and pro tools shops and, I had none, <laughs> really. And but you know, when you when you come to a juncture like that, there's sort of two ways you can go. You can sort of like, okay, I'm gonna take this time and I'm gonna learn what I can and mm-hmm. you know work from that. Um, or you know, you can be like, I know what I don't know, and um, mm-hmm. I'll find a way to um, collaborate with someone who's you know has that set of skills, that expertise. Um, or like, you can. What I've also done in some cases is just like, I know a very rudimentary amount for this. Let me make a piece out of my weaknesses. Yeah. That's just like, okay, I only know how to do this one thing. Great. I'll just do that. That's what you, yeah. 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 That's a great palette Why to not? start with. Yeah. yeah. Did, um, how quickly did Wet Ink become a thing when you guys were all there? Well, I mean, the, the history of that group really predates me too. Um, but it, it went through all these different evolutions in a way that's really interesting. And um, this is the 20th year of that group's existence are you serious yeah yeah well because it goes back to um minchek and oh man the original crew is really fascinating to think about now because it was um alex minchek sam hilmer like jacob garchik dan weiss jacob Sachs. i had no um, idea i think even like ohad talmor maybe maybe i'm just wrong about that but really yeah just like a, a really crazy this is like um, a manhattan school of music? it was it was basically like a bunch of people in the msm jazz program who were interested in things that weren't jazz and wanted to get together and like listen to other stuff and like have a, a forum to do that where they wouldn't be like vibed for, you know, being interested in checking out like classical music, right? That, something that wasn't like you know straight ahead or whatever. But, so, is Z's sort of like an extension of that? Yeah. So Z's came out of Wet Ink um, in the early two thousands or maybe yeah. the late nineties. So that that was like ninety eight was when those guys sort of started things up. 
um, for a while. <clears throat> it was using what Ink were kind of like co-ensembles within the group. And then, yeah, so like Matt Huff and Charlie Looker and mm-hmm. um, uh, Ian Antonio, who's still in what Ink Ensemble and Aaron Lesser uh, as well, got involved and Ian was involved in Z's too. Um, yeah, so I mean, all that, that stuff was kind of going on in those days. And so that was that was what I saw when I uh, was coming to New York and checking things out in like 2002, mm-hmm. 2003. You and, saw that there was this group of people <clears throat> who were uh, making it happen for themselves. Yeah, and just, and I think like vibe and aesthetics, I was really drawn to it. It was just like, um, it was direct and it was clear and they were interested in musically some of the things that I was really interested in too and just didn't see a lot of other people doing, mm-hmm. like playing really complicated shit in unison, um, just having things that were like, both really stripped down on some level, but also really visceral um, on another that were uh, really trying to find an interesting kinds of tensions and balances between simplicity and complexity. Yeah. Uh, in a way that had a very direct kind of. I, I always have a hard arc I, to it. I'm never fully certain. Uh, I mean, I know people like Steve Reich who lives right behind me. Uh-huh. Uh, Steve Reich, Philip Glass. Like, I know these guys were putting together their own ensembles yeah. to make shit happen. But there is this thing in New York, so many ensembles, whether it's Wet Ink, Yarn Wire, Talea, um, Ice, uh, 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 the um, Tilt Brass Band, like, yeah. all of Next Works, these groups that have, you know, some, some are no longer around, some, you know, continue. Yep. Has, has that always been the case? Or is this like a particular phenomenon of the first part of the 21st century? Oh, I mean, the, well. Mivos. Like, this. there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Jack Quartet. Totally. Like, I, You know, I actually think we're on the tail end of it now. Yeah. Because I think, um, I think we had a kind of flourishing moment. And I think then the way in which the city continued to trend, I don't see as many young groups coming up. Is that I just think it's, it's because money? It's, it's just harder. Like, yeah. How are you going to move here now? How are you going to move here now and like try to start something? Where are you going to yeah. live? Like, you're going to be going back and forth between like East New York and like Sunset Park and right. like Washington Heights trying to play gigs. It's just like, oh my god, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, and, like all so much of the resources are spoken for by these groups that are kind of institutional at this point. This the same crop of groups yeah, that I was just that, talking that about. were just like they were the the scrappy DIY, DIY kids in the yeah seventies eighties nineties early two thousands and right. they're still around and they're still thriving and they're an integral part of the fabric of music in the city mm-hmm. and they're not going to go away and there's not that much money to go around and there's not a lot of money left for like um, even like mid tier I think that's mostly it actually like there's always going to be like zero budget arts in New York right. there's always going to be like DIY. You know, right, 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 right. But, you know, like the next step up, I think is really, really hard to get to in a way that just totally mirrors like wealth inequality stuff that's going on sure. in society more broadly. I think it's it's pretty analogous. Right. But what does that say about like the quality of the work? Like there's, you know, there's there's groups in New York that have, you know, a history of, you know, 40 years at this point yeah. that do these gigantic productions. Maybe the music's not quite as, you know. Yeah compelling or 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 intense as something that you know a group of friends from from any college program say hey let's start an ensemble yeah that's that's a problem because there has to be space for the other yeah um yeah i mean i think that's that's one of the big issues to solve right now 
And my current thinking, which we don't have to go on this track right now, but um, feels like maybe things do need to dissipate or spread out away from being super centralized in New York and just be more local in other places. But I mean, the, you know, the great, this is, you know, not a huge insight, but the great thing about New York is that there's so many murderer musicians in this city. Right. So that yeah. whatever it is you're trying to make happen, you say, hey, I want to write a piece like a, a fucking concerto for improvising tabla. Like yeah. you could actually make that happen here. You could. You could, but should you? Probably No, no, that'd be a terrible <laughs> idea. I mean, yeah. I'm sure. I, I just mean like, you know, the, 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 pool of musicians no, here of is totally. unparalleled yeah and that's and that's that is the thing that is you're not ever going to get really anywhere else but um the again i'm just trying to imagine and sometimes you know i i do hear from like younger people who are like hey so should i move to new york so what do i tell them right so that yeah. that is a, a question right now and in in recent years i've told them like maybe not actually like okay cool you're like you just got out of Oberlin, you have connections in Cleveland, like what's going on in Cleveland? Is there any, like, it's like, yeah, okay. I can imagine like getting a foot in here and maybe getting something off the ground. I think that's great. Like yeah. maybe, maybe trying to build something in a sort of local way, because imagine if like, if everybody, not everybody, but if enough people did that in enough, like slightly smaller cities or smaller towns, um, in a way that remained, really sort of conversational and connected in the way that kind of everything tends to be at this point. Um, it would be amazing to have like a touring circuit of like little scenes. Right. And, you know, you could just go from like Western Mass to New York to New Haven to Columbus to Chicago to Nashville to, um, mm -hmm. you know, Asheville, uh, wherever else, and just play for a, a scene. And there would be a scene there. And then those musicians could come and play at like the club that you have and um, wherever that is. Mm -hmm. and, um, just like when, when it is a kind of all or nothing thing where it's like, I mean, at least now we have LA too, we have Chicago mm -hmm. too, like things, those cities are pretty vital at this point. It's not, it's definitely not just New York. Um, but it's still very concentrated mm -hmm. and I think it would be healthy, um, especially for people who are like coming up right now to like, I mean, maybe even if just for the first five years. Like, you know, start your own thing. You have some shelter, like get a little ensemble going, try some stuff out. And then if, if shit really gets like, you know, really takes off, you guys are really like killing it. Like come play New York. Yeah. You know, try it out and see if like, if you get like drafted into like that, that league, you know, by whatever means, then sure. Right. For, so you became involved in what ink in what year? Uh, 2004. So pretty quickly after you started yeah. at Columbia. Uh-huh. And the idea was to have a group of musicians, composers who also are players, yeah. to realize each other's work? Is it yeah, basically. Um, yeah. Just like there is something really direct about that. It does solve a lot of the um, kind of social political problems that are still kind of real issues in classical music, which is like it's not always awesome as a performer to play someone's shitty piece. It mm -hmm. doesn't work for your instrument at all that you mm -hmm. have like two short rehearsals for and you only play it once and then you throw it away. Mm -hmm. That's not a great labor model. Mm -hmm. That's not a great artistic model. Um, and again, it's one that <clears throat> it's just, it's really rare in the field of music. Yeah. Almost no music works like that. Most music is people who really, really care about it. It's like the most important thing in their lives. They're going to put the amount of time into it that it takes to make it like at the highest level that it can be. Um, was there um, 
a concerted effort to build a repertoire from scratch or were you looking at contemporary music saying well we should do that that piece over there and oh it was all over the map yeah a little bit of that a little bit of like um people just wanted to write pieces mm-hmm. um so like, like i mean okay, the name cool. of the group would indicate that yeah, right. yeah. uh yep um so and it was always super ad hoc in that way it was like who do we have for this concert yeah cool that's the piece you write it wasn't like I have a string quartet in my head that must come out. It was, you know, definitely much more like, um, uh, yeah, very, very direct. And, um, and, and even then, like, not just, um, okay, cool, I have piano, but, like, knowing that it's um, me specifically or knowing that it's, you know, not just saxophone, but it's Alex specifically or Matt Huff yeah. on guitar or Aaron on flute, um, you know, that, that sort of model, which is, again, kind of an anti-classical music model in which, you're usually writing for the instrument and sort of in an idealized yeah. form rather than um, what I think through Alex we started thinking of as like the Duke Ellington kind of <laughs> model of composition. Where it's just like, I mean, even if I yeah. as a, you know, I was playing like accordion during that time too cause, um, because it's hard the, to come by the pianos. Music was asking for? Or that's... No, 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 just like logistically. Yeah. Not a lot of pianos around. Um, I was interested in the instrument, sort of bought one for cheap, um, started playing accordion. So like, write me apart for accordion. Just know that like, I can't really do the buttons in the left hand very well. So like, maybe just <laughs> you focus know, you on the virtuoso, right but uh, right. Yeah. But still like, um, there's a ton you can do with those kind of constraints mm-hmm. if you know them and if you're able to workshop them and like work them through. So that was just a, um, a really interesting kind of fun way of, uh, of working and one that I still actually really, really enjoy. Um, but, and then in terms of navigating the, you know, intense bureaucracy of arts funding yeah. and classical performance. Um, as an ensemble, has that been like, you know, do you, do you, do you feel less alone out there because you got a group of people kind of figuring this shit out together? Oh, yeah. And, you know, also another reason I would recommend um, to like people starting out to, to work in collective environments is that especially these days when like, I mean, God, I see like high school students who are already like, trying to be like public figures as composers. Um, really? It's just much less psychologically toxic to be a part of a group than it is to be on your own at yeah. that age. Just like do something for your team. Don't just always be in it for yourself that early. I think it just really can fuck up your head. I mean, the very concept of of, of this kind of work environment is in direct opposition to you know, the American idea of of any business practice. Yeah. Oh, totally. Collectivity. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why it's so powerful to yeah. me, I think, is that um, it's so something we, that is... We each have a chihuahua yeah, on our lap now. <laughs> We're on equal terms. Is like she driving you crazy, by the best. No, it's awesome. Okay. Dude. Yeah, this is... So when did you finish at Columbia? Uh, I was around until like 2009, I think. So you've been gone for a while. Well, <laughs> I'm not. See, I live here now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I get this all the time, which is is fair enough because like I have I've been in and out since 2009, but I've mostly been here. Right. right. I just mean from uh, at Columbia, you're you've been. Out. Oh yeah, no, but that that is a thing I get all the time of like, oh, so are you back? No, it's just just like you know, it's one of these New York vibey things that I think a lot of people get. It's like, oh yeah, if yeah. you've ever talked about leaving New York, people are like, oh, do you still are you still here? Oh, okay. I... Oh, cool. Yeah, people like to vibe on that shit, yeah, don't they? It's, whatever, it's fine. Do you ever have nightmares about that? No, 
I've had nightmares before I where mean, like I move out of New York and then as soon as I get to like my new place, right. I'm like, oh god, what have I done? It's all right. over. Exactly. But I've done it, so I I've done it before, and I'm and you, you realize that I like, will do it again at some point. Yeah. So, um, I I know that it's not the end of the world. Um, but yeah, so like I uh, at that point I took a job at Amherst. They um. I guess often they would hire alums to come back as visiting really? professors okay. in the music department because they had this, um, you know, pretty nice setup uh, for a one-year, or I guess in this case it was a two-year, ended up being a two-year job. Just fell into my lap, super lucky. Um, so I did that. Got my first taste of uh, the academic life from the other side. Um, what were you teaching? I was teaching mostly music theory. Yeah. But to, to what level of student? Undergrads. Yeah. Um, at Amherst, you know, there's a couple people a decade who would make a career in music. Sure. So it's not, it's a liberal arts school. All the, you know, super, super intelligent kids, some of them incredibly creative and bright. Um, a certain percentage of them also just like kind of test prep, like kind of, you know, uh, academic jock mm-hmm. kind of kids who just like have learned to excel in that. Um, kind of framework. Um, the other place that I taught was Oberlin, and the contrast between those two was super apparent. Of like, yeah, yeah. Oberlin seems like a, a like a farm of creativity. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a very mixed bag. But mm-hmm. I was um, on on some levels just super impressed by uh, the students that were there for sure. They, I really think a lot of them were like just more brain firepower than I have mm-hmm. going on. Like really. Um, super, super bright, um, super thoughtful. And it was so interesting to experience that as part of this sort of longer term engagement with like, what does it take to write great music? Yeah. And to very slowly realize, I think that like being intelligent is important, but being really, really smart maybe is not helpful. (laughs) What does does that mean? Well, okay. That's the wrong way to say it. But like being as smart as you can possibly be about everything. And like, uh, it, that's just not going to save you. Yeah. That's, you need more than that. That's not enough. Um, and it's, it's more a tool than anything else. It's not an end in itself. So, um, there's just a lot of things that it takes, I think to, um, just to make music that will really, um, you know, grab other people in the way that mm-hmm. um, I feel like, you know, something like um, some of Cormac McCarthy kind of gets to me. It's not, it's not only brain power, you know, mm-hmm. it's not only that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing for sure. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was sort of an interesting thing to like take in for myself and also to, to try to reflect back to some of uh, the students so you continue you you continue to to work in academic environments. I was in and out of it for a while. Um, for a minute, I had this idea that I would try to like <laughs> do this kind of stupid like hack the system thing and like just only do visiting gigs and do, have like a kind of reverse sabbatical uh, <laughs> schedule. Where, like once every two or three years, I would do a one year or a two year uh-huh. job somewhere and like bank you know some money and then just like live my super bohemian life on that savings for like a year, even if I didn't have a bunch of other money coming in. Right. And, um, and was kind of able to do, actually do that for, uh, for a while. But I think I got to a point where I realized that it's like, um, both 
in structural ways, in ways that have to do with how the academy has changed in recent years, and in ways that have to do with just my specific personality. It's just not for me. Yeah. Uh, in any long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where are you teaching now? No, I teach privately. Yeah. Yeah, but not other than that. Yeah, yeah. and that's great. And I, I, I really enjoy, especially like one-on-one kind of teaching, like working with students, uh, composition-wise. I, I always love teaching theory, too, but in a kind of selfish way that I don't know if I could go back to, which is just that um, I liked the aspect in which it was sort of like, it was like teaching chess. Mm-hmm. It's like, we don't have to think about whether or not this is valid culturally <laughs> or like whether or not it's fucked up to like spend a semester of your time, like talking about species counterpoint in like <laughs> the, the Renaissance. We're just going to do it. Yeah. Um, and that was super fun. And I got, um, again, like the puzzling kind of analytical part of my brain really ate that up and enjoyed, um, you know, finding ways to kind of master that and to synthesize that information and pass it on to people in a very clear way. But um, now I would find it really hard to go back to that. And just yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why are we spending? <laughs> well, I mean, these skills are great. Sure. But like, why are we, why are we doing this? Yeah. Actually, I think we just need to think about it. And you, you stay active writing and performing. I mean, that's, that's really what I do. And I think, um, the like since leaving grad school which going on 10 years now it's been a kind of um sort of uh snaky path to figuring out um what i want my day-to-day to to look like Mm -hmm. um how i want it to feel um and how how to do that and still survive Mm -hmm. um just you know make money um not have to not have to really truly worry about like where is the money coming from? Um, and uh, at the moment, it's in a pretty good place. You're able like, to work creatively throughout the day. I mean, that's that's really all that I've done for the past almost two years oh. is just sit at a desk and write. Um, so good. Which is kind of amazing. I mean, I, I still like, I do performing gigs. Sure. Um, and that sort of thing, but you know, not not to the extent that you would say I'm in that like freelance grind at all. But can I can I just ask what? So you know, when we were emailing a week or two ago, yeah, you'd mentioned that um, mornings are are kind of on lockdown yeah. because you're focusing on some projects specifically. Yeah. At the end of a workday, mm-hmm. what does that feeling of um, achievement and and relaxation process i mean like like, what do you do to what does the end of the day look like yeah yeah well okay so um i think a lot a lot about this and i've gotten to where i am now i think by doing artist residencies yeah i did that a lot um in the last five or six years you did the the civitella italian yep yeah i went there and i went to the mcdowell colony twice i went to jurassic in um northern california so that was awesome in mm-hmm. just on a number of levels um a huge one of which was just like really being in contact with people who are not musicians mm-hmm. uh, and just seeing what their arts practice was seeing how they talked about what they were doing um super illuminating to see like a writer come in and be like yeah so i'm here for two months i'm working on uh, a second draft of um this book of short stories mm-hmm. just that for eight weeks whereas if a composer were there for eight weeks, they'd be like, yeah, I have four pieces I'm going to write from start to finish. Right. Uh, they're all commissions. They're all due like two months ago. I'm so behind. Yeah. You know, all this sort of stuff. It's like, I kind of like the other way yeah. better. Like what if, what can I learn from these other 
ways of making work because uh, again like some of the stuff is structural some of it's built into the the economics uh, the logistics of our field and some of it is not some of it's volitional some of it's tradition some of it's just a habit that people have gotten into but like could i spend a year just writing this little piece or this huge piece or could i spend four years writing mm -hmm. a big piece and what would that mean so that was that was really valuable to me uh also it gave me this idea of like uh if you're going to do that day in day out you need to have a concept of balance and of what what sort of the ideal day is because it comes down to that you're just kind of reliving it's a groundhog day kind of vibe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is and it's just which is adult life too on, on some level and is why that movie is actually kind of amazing mm -hmm. uh, i think it's like a deep uh movie in a way but um the so if you're going to only do the same routine every day you have to optimize it and it maybe it can't be exactly the same but you have you know little things so it's like uh writing time creative time um you know exercise time you know eating good food cooking like seeing people um hanging out with people you care about mm -hmm. um all of that stuff has to be kind of part of the the routine um so yeah i mean that's the thing that i feel like i've been i've spent the last two years or so really kind of understanding myself um in terms of that that mm -hmm. sort of framework yeah. that that discipline basically um and what that what that takes so for me what that looks like usually is um, waking up at a relatively reasonable time. I was sort of playing around this winter with like a much earlier <laughs> schedule just to like combat what? when, that, when the time oh, change that, happens. It's just 6 like, oh, just at dawn. Like I don't sleep through the light. Yeah. So anytime I'm in bed past dawn, I'm sort of half conscious. Anyway, so like 6 a.m. Yeah. So I was you know getting up at then, and that was actually great. Sort of totally house is quiet. Yeah, it's quiet. Just like. Um, so get down to it within an hour or so. I always start by meditating. Yeah. That's my, you know, I have a bunch of daily practices that sort of go into feeling like every day is like a kind of whole thing. Um, that kind of gets me ready to write. And then I have, I feel like I have an hour and a half um, after that at the start of the morning where I can, that's my kind of something out of nothing time. Mm -hmm. That's when like, you know, the sort of deep creativity can happen. And then it's sort of like stand up, walk around for a second, come back to the desk. Now it's more like executing mm -hmm. ideas. So mm -hmm. things that have been presented to you in a more raw form, you sort of start to work them a little bit, get your hands on them and um, work through it. And then, you know, over the course of the day, just understanding that you don't have the same brain at different points in the day. Yeah. I can't be creative after lunch for a couple of hours. I just have, I have nothing to give absolutely nothing but i mean i can copy a score page. sure i can do rote work yeah, yeah like yeah. that i can send emails it's a great time to send emails emails not editing, starting the day that, with yeah. email is an incredible thing for me that's it, good yeah just not getting not starting by putting all of that stuff in your head not when like, you got all that good energy save it for the creative stuff and it, i mean especially like since i moved back to new york most recently which was like a week after the election in November 2016. Like, yeah. You know, you open up your computer and you just... You're instantly dragged you down. Just, yeah, in in the, like, infernal sewer of all that yeah. um, horrific shit. So not having to start your day by doing that, but just being like, you know what? I can give myself, as part of, like, existing through all of this, it is a, a thing that I will, you know, um, think of, like, maybe it is part of resisting just 
being dragged down by all that shit to right. like, give myself these first four hours of the day to not think about it. And then, you know, later in the day, I'm like, yes, I'm a, I'm a citizen of this country. I'm a part right. of this community. I, it's, I'm not hiding from it, mm-hmm. but I have to, you know, get in there and engage with it. But, um, I, I'm going to take these first few hours as more sacred time. Um, yeah, you know, the, so then like afternoon is tasks and errands and going shopping. Like I do most of the cooking, so mm-hmm. food shopping. And, um, although I guess Anna does a lot of the food shopping, I should give her credit for, <laughs> she's really, really good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love cooking Yeah, and, and more and more I just, I spend cooking. I feel like a chunk good, of my time every day. It's a good, that. um, like period at the end of a day. Totally. Where, I mean, to me, cooking is supposed to be relaxing. Yeah, yeah. But it's also creative. Yeah. And it, you know, on a day maybe where you had a like a total failure of a writing day. Yeah. Everything you try to come up with just like Nothing fell apart happened. in your hands. Just uh you can then just like do a creative project from start to finish and then eat it at night. Yeah. Cooking. You know, just like it 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 does that and it sort of helps, you know, get you ready to do it again mm-hmm. the next day, I think, if you've had a kind of rough day. Um Yeah. And I mean, you know, after that I'm like Having a couple beers and mm-hmm. watching TV. That's watching it. Movies. Yep. Film. I don't, I don't work at night. No. Yep. Unless it's really like deadline crunch copying yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Just because again, I'm going to get up the next morning and do it again. Like seven days a week, most weeks, six days. So yeah. This I'm, is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll say a couple things. One is, I think my dog is thoroughly <laughs> entranced and in love with you. <laughs> I she's I mean, she's like melting in your lap like butter right now. She knows I was talking about her. Uh, but man, this, actually, specifically, this last part of the conversation was incredibly useful to me. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I love that shit too. And like just hearing other people talk about their yeah. processes. And, yeah. I, man, I would, I was, I was just, I, I did a conversation with someone yesterday and we talked about this thing. If a, um, like a, a very expensive coffee book book came out of uh-huh. portraits of composers, workspaces, and then just like them talking about the day to day, I would buy it. Totally. So, yeah. You know, but uh, but thanks for coming over and talking. Of course, my this pleasure. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. All right, that was Eric Wubbles. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. I did. He's a good dude, right? He, uh, he I think he's just a good quality person, you know. And I enjoyed that last bit when I was sincerely asking him about his routine that that was sincerely me looking for a little bit of guidance uh from someone whose music i i respect if you want to find out more about eric go to wubblesmusic.com check out the wet ink ensemble wetink.org and that's it hope you guys are all doing well we'll talk to you next week all right bye Thank you.